Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2. What we're going to be considering tonight is a passage that John writes, and I believe that John is writing about a battle that is going on in the world around us as a battle that each and every one of us are facing, uh, a battle for our hearts, a battle for what our hearts are going to treasure, a battle for what we're going to believe, a battle for what we're going to love. First John is a book written by uh, John the Apostle. And he is writing to a group of people that he obviously knows very well. We don't know exactly what his relationship is to this group of people, but he, uh, he has ministered among these people, and he knows them. And this is a, a letter that we see just a real pastoral heart being presented here, a, a pastor, a, a minister who, who just deeply loves the people that he's writing to and that he knows very well. And he, he writes to them, basically the whole idea of this letter is to write to them so they can understand and, and know whether or not they are true believers. Uh, we, we direct people to read this a lot of times if they're struggling with whether or not they're a Christian. So he writes in this all these different ways. Here's how you know whether or not you are a true believer. And he writes about things about the importance of, of loving one another. And he writes about how we're to guard ourselves against sin and, and a very, various other different things. But we, we come to a point here in, in chapter 2 where he addresses a topic that I think is very pertinent to us today. A passage that I think talks about how there is right now a battle going on for our hearts. And I want you to, to hear and to, to listen to this. I'm going to read a few verses of this. And I want you just to listen to the pastoral heart, the love that this man is writing uh, toward this people here. Listen to what he says. I am, starting in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It's as if he's writing here, and he says, listen, I know you. I know how you have learned about who God is and I know and I have seen how you have come to know him and I have seen how your faith has grown and how you have have grown in your understanding of God's word and your love for God and I have seen how you're growing and deepening in that faith and now as I see that happening in your lives I want you to understand something very very important and so he's crying out with this love this little children that he calls them mothers fathers little um, young men all these different ways that he addresses them and he says to them Listen, I want you to understand my love for you. But I want you to understand that there is something very, very important for you to know. And it's what he writes here in verse 15. After all this, little children, fathers, young men. Now verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray right now. God, we come before you and we, again, just give thanks to you for the truth that you have granted us your word. God, we give thanks to you again for the truth that you have brought salvation to us, a people who do not deserve it. And God, we just, we just give thanks to you that we have this opportunity now to gather together as a body to hear your word and that you've brought us together for this purpose. God, I pray now that you will work among us. God, I recognize that there is nothing in and of myself that adds strength to my words. God, there is nothing in and of me that that can bring about life change. But God, we recognize the truth of your word. And God, we pray that you will work among us. God, I pray that you will grant me wisdom in the words that I say. And God, I pray that you will just have your word go forth with power and the spirit will move among us to show us the truth of your word that we may be different for having encountered you this evening. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Again, this is a man who deeply loves the people that he's writing to, and he knows this is what God has done in your life. And he's written to them er earlier in this book. He says, that which we've seen, that which we've heard, that which we've touched, that which we've handled, we proclaim to you the truth of who God is. You know what that is. Now I want you to understand, dear children, here's my worry for you. Here's what I'm concerned about for you. My concern is that you'll love the world. So little children, beloved, do not love the world or the things of the world. This is the charge that John gives to the people that he's writing to. And I think that the, the call that he presents to them right there during this time 2,000 years ago rings true to us today as we read God's word that God is still proclaiming out to us today, do not love the world or the things of this world. And that's the challenge that I pray uh, placing before us tonight is to consider this passage and what John says about not loving the world. And tonight as we look at this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to basically ask three questions. Three questions to help us understand what does it mean to love the world and what is that going to look like in our lives personally to abide by this truth to not love the world. So three questions that we're going to start out with. The first question that we're going to start with is the question, what is the world? If you follow along in your note-taking sheet, uh, the first answer that you'll, you'll see in there in the fill-in-the-blank is the world. What is the world? Now, when we're looking at this passage, John lays out very clearly, specifically, what we're not supposed to do. He says, do not love the world. But when we're looking at this, this all can almost seem like a contradiction to us when we start thinking about other passages of Scripture. John says, do not love the world. But think back about other passages of Scripture that talk about the world. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. God created everything, and after each day, what did he say about the world, what he had created? He said, it is good. So John says, do not love the world, but back in Genesis, God created, and after everything, God says, it is good. And then what was the last thing that he says, last day? It is very good. God looks at the world and says, it is very good. Now, the most famous verse in Scripture is what? That everybody knows. See it hung up at ball games. All right, John 3, 16. What does that verse say? For God so loved the, the world. All right, so we have this going on here where it says that 
The world is good, proclaimed by God. Now we have John 3, 16, where, G, or where John himself, who wrote this, uh, is writing and recording that Jesus says, for God so loved the world. How does this fit together? Jesus says that he so loved the world. God so loved the world. And then we have right here, we're not supposed to love the world. What are we supposed to do here? Well, the way that this is being used here by John is a, is a very important, special kind of usage that he's using with this word. When he says here, do not love the world, he's not talking about people. He's not saying, do not love people. When he says here, do not love the world, he's not writing just specifically about, about the universe, that, that which God has created. It's a, it's a kind of particular, special way that he's using uh, the word here. And here's what we need to get about what he's saying here about not loving the world. When he's saying world here, he's recognizing that there's a battle going on. He is recognizing that there is a war taking place all around us. Whether we recognize it or not, there is a spiritual battle taking place in the world around us. This is something that we see over and over again in Scripture, talking about how there is a spiritual battle going on in the world. And so this world here refers to anything that's opposed to God in this battle that we're talking about. Think of some of the different times and just in the New Testament where it talks about a battle raging uh, around a spiritual war uh, that, we're, that is taking place. Jesus says in John 12, 31, he talks about a ruler who is of this world. Then Paul goes on in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. He talks about a prince of the power of the air, speaking uh, about Satan. This is the same passage where he talks about how we're dead in our trespasses and our sins, how we're at enmity uh, with God. And he says that, that there is right now a prince of the power of the air. And he goes on in the famous passage uh, later in Ephesians 6 where he's talking about uh, putting on the, uh, the full armor of God. You remember that passage? Well, Ephesians 6 uh, 12, this is what Paul says. He says, our struggle is not against what? You remember? Flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the world. No, in the heavenly places. He's talking about this kind of battle there is going on. And so there is this battle for what our hearts are going to love. What are our hearts going to be focused on? What is going to be the consuming, driving force of our life? Because right now, we need to understand that there is a battle for what our hearts are going to be consumed with. Are our hearts going to be consumed with God and with the things of God? Or are our hearts going to love the world and the things of the world? As John says, do not love this world and the things of this world. So here's what we need to understand about what John's saying here about loving the world. This world means anything Anything that is part of this existence right here, right now, that pulls our hearts away from God. Do not love the world. World means anything that pulls our hearts from, away from God, that steals our love away from God. The one place where our hearts should be set. Now before we go on with this, one thing that we need to avoid, let us not think here that John is just talking about things that openly oppose God. It's easy for us to, to read this and think about this, this battle that's going on and begin to think that, well, what he is talking about are just those things that blatantly, openly are opposed to God. So we might think, oh, he's just talking about uh, false religion here. 
And we know how uh, the, the false religions are blatantly, openly opposed to God. Islam, Buddhism, uh, Mormonism, and, and the, the various uh, cults that are out there, how they reject the truth of who God is. Then we could think about, okay, open idolatry, uh, bowing down to idols. We could talk about this kind of, uh, of worldliness. Or we could think about um, blatant kind of blasphemy. There is a, a kind of a documentary that's out right now that is uh, put together by a group of atheists. And one thing that they're doing in this documentary is they're looking at Scripture that says, well, the only, uh, the only unpardonable sin, as it's known, is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You remember that? Jesus talking about that? Well, so they will blatantly go out and say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I do not believe the Holy Spirit. In this movie, to set apart and say, hey, we're atheists. When John is talking about here, that not loving the world and this kind of um, things that are opposed to God, he's not just talking about those things that are so open, blatantly opposed to God. Here's what one pastor wrote. J.M. Boyce, he's, he's a great Presbyterian pastor who passed away just a few years ago. It's on your sheet that you can look at and keep. It says, world here involves the world's values, the world's pleasures, the world's pastimes, the world's aspirations. As we read through this passage, let's not gloss over this. I think one thing that is easy for, do, for us to do is just to, to come to a passage like this, read over it, and think to ourselves, this does not concern me. This doesn't matter to me. This isn't something that directly affects my life. And my fear is that we will read over this passage and that we'll walk out these doors being the exact same as we were when we walked in, that we'll have not encountered God's word in this passage. Here's what I want you to get. Here's what I want you to understand in this passage. John was concerned that the people he was writing to would love this world too much. He was worried that these little children that he called, these little children, these beloved people of his, would love this world too much. Now here's what we need to remember about these people that John was writing to. These were people 2,000 years ago, and here's what we need to remember about them. Probably this group of, group of people that John was so concerned about loving this world too much probably had almost absolutely nothing. Think about that. John was worried that this group of people that he loved so dearly who had almost nothing, poverty that we can probably not even fathom here in America today, that had so little, he was worried that they would love the world too much. He was worried that this group of people right here would love the world too much. This group of people who are probably facing unbelievable persecution. This letter was probably written around the time of 85 to 95 A.D. Now this, is, this comes about 25 to 30 years after some major persecution has already taken place. You remember hearing about Nero? Roman Emperor Nero? Yeah, a lot of people. You nod your head, yes, you do. Hopefully, yeah, you're still awake. All right, Nero. A lot of you have heard about Nero. Nero lived about the time of 65 uh, A.D. is when he ruled and reigned. Nero was a man who hated Christianity. He was known for taking Christians and having them killed, having them thrown to the lines, having them uh, just murdered. One thing that Nero did for his parties, he would line the streets with Christians on crosses and burn them, set them on fire, light his parties with Christians being burned alive. 
This was the world that these Christians knew. These Christians, their very own parents, may have gone through and experienced some of this kind of persecution that Nero took under and that he gave to these Christians. And so John, even though they have probably absolutely nothing, and they have gone through persecution, they have known what it means to have loved ones killed, he is still worried that they will love this world too much. If it was a worry for them then, how much more so for us right here, right now, when we have so much more to pull us to love the world right here, right now? How much more is it a danger for us today? I am convinced, absolutely convinced, that when it comes to this, we are living in the most dangerous time and the most dangerous place that the world has ever known when it comes to loving this world. John was worried that they would love the world when they were facing persecution, when they had basically nothing to their names. And here we have every single thing that could possibly be imagined right before us in our culture here today. Billions upon billions of dollars are spent just on advertising, crying out to us when we see the TV every single day. You need this. You must have this. Your life will not be complete unless you enjoy this Happy Meal. Your kids won't be happy unless they are at McDonald's having their Happy Meal with their toy, getting to play on the, play, the playground there. You know, these are the messages that are being screamed out to us constantly that you must have this bigger, better screen TV. You must have this bigger, better, nicer house. You need to have all this different kind of stuff. It's being cried out to us constantly in the world in which we live today. Live it up for all you can right now. Live for the here and the now. Get the most joy, fun out of the stuff that you can possibly get. No other time, no other place in all the world has known what we know here. So do not love the world. Next question that we're going to answer is how do we tend to love the world? See, John's not, John's not going to be content with just laying out this command, don't love the world. He wants to explain to us what exactly that means. What is exactly does it mean to, to love the world? How do we tend to do that? So that's the question we're trying to answer now. How do we, as believers across the centuries, not just in John's time and not just today, but across all centuries, how do we tend to love the world? And the, the things that John lays out here are true no matter whether a Christian lived 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or whether they live today. These things that John's writing remain true to us for how we struggle with this command of not loving the world. So how do we tend to love the world? He lays out three different ways, and we're going to kind of just take these step by step and notice what they say. It says, do not love the world. And then in verse 16, for all that is in the world, and he starts out, the lust of the flesh. First way that we tend to love the world is the lust of the flesh. Now there's two important words that he uses in that, lust and flesh. Lust, we often think of in, in primarily a sexual way, but it's a word that means desires. It's a simple meaning of it, desires. And then flesh is a word that's very important for this. Flesh oftentimes in the New Testament refers to our fallen nature. 
So we could kind of reword this when we're thinking about it and, and say that we are not to follow after the desires of the fallen nature. Don't follow after the desires of the fallen nature. That is one way that we tend to, to love this world. Now here's one thing that you and I need to understand is that we each have this fallen nature. You know, we've talked about this various times before, that each of us were born sinners. That we have a nature in us that causes us to, to act out in sin. And we see this in little kids. You know, you see how a kid doesn't have to be taught how to lie. You see that a little kid doesn't have to be taught how to disobey mom and dad. Todd's laughing. Oh, he had to teach Braden evidently how to, uh, how to lie. Um, uh, that would never happen to a child. A child would never tell a lie. Um, we all know, we've seen kids that just act out and lie with nobody ever having ever taught them to do that. That's the sinful nature that we have acting out. And one thing that we need to remember is that even though we're believers, we still have a nature that is fallen. We may be redeemed, we have been bought with a price, we have been converted, but we will not reach that state of perfection, that glorification, until we go into the presence of Christ. And so you and I still struggle with a sin nature that we have. And I can tell you, by looking at my own life, I still struggle with the sin nature in me. I can cry out with Paul that I have this flesh that is within me that I struggle with. And I can see in my own life the struggles of the desires of the flesh in my own life. I can see how when I, um, how when I, I feel the urging of God within me just to sit down and study his word, I can feel the flesh raising up and saying, why don't you just sit down and watch a little TV? You know? Those times when God might be drawing me just... It's time to draw near to me in prayer. And how my heart just says, can you find anything else that you can do instead to take up your time? I was gone on vacation just a, a couple weeks ago, and Jen and I had the opportunity to go to, uh, to Gulf Shores for three nights and then on to Destin, Florida uh, for three nights. And it was, it, it was beautiful. You know, it's like almost snowing out here now. And uh, when we were there, it was about 90 degrees. I mean, perfect weather, sun, beautiful, shining. Uh, Steph's looking at me because I think it's cold. This is, I don't like the cold. Uh, I much prefer uh, warm weather. Um, but it was beautiful there. But you know what? When it got time to leave, you know what my heart said? My heart was just yearning just for ease and comfort and to not have to worry about work and to just love this life right here. My heart was just crying out, just forget about everything, just, just love the beach, and just the ease and the comfort of laying here and not having to worry about anything. And you know, I was just, I was tempted just to love just the ease and comfort that was right there, and just love just that kind of fun relaxation, forget about everything. You see how our hearts can well up in us to, to love that which we shouldn't. The flesh cries out. John says one way that we can love the world is through lust of the flesh. Another way that we tend to love the world is through the lust of the eyes. Again, it's the same word that's used here, desires, the desires of the eyes. One writer wrote this about it, and catch what he says. He says that what John means here is the tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things. Think about that a second. The lust of the eyes is a tendency to be captivated by the outward show of things. This is something that we see all through Scripture. 
Think back to uh, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. You remember the command that God gave to them? What was the command that he gave to them in the Garden of Eden? Do not eat from fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Exactly. Do not eat from that tree. But what, is, what does Eve do? She goes, she sees the tree, and you remember what it was that caused her to reach out for that? She saw it, and it was a delight to her eyes. She saw, and she wanted, she grabbed. All right, remember the story of Achan in the Old Testament? This may be a, a guy that you might remember, kind of fuzzy in the back of the mind. Remember Achan? Uh, everybody remembers the fall of Jericho, right? Walking around the city through, you know, those times, and it falls. Okay, get some knowledge. People remember that story. All right, within that, God gave some very clear commands of what's supposed to happen. He says, you know, you walk around the city all these different times. Last time, you do the shout, the walls fall down, you go in. Now, when you go in, put to death the people who are in there, and the silver and gold belong to God. Don't take it for yourself. Now, what does Achan do? Achan goes in. He sees a few things that he likes. Achan thinks it looks good. He grabs some gold, grabs some silver, grabs a few garments, takes it, brings it back into his tent, hides it, buries it in the ground. People of Israel are routed there in a battle not too long after that. People begin to think, what's happened? Sin's been brought into the camp. Eventually it's found out that Achan has brought in this sin, that he has sinned. And then here's what he says when he's caught. He says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them. He saw and he coveted. All right, everybody remembers David. David the king, what did he do with Bathsheba? Everybody remembers the, the story of adultery that goes on there? Where is David when this happens? Anybody remember? On the rooftop, and then he looks, and he sees Bathsheba, and then he goes and commits adultery uh, with Bathsheba. He looks, and then he sins. We see this over and over. And what is this that's happening? It's the eyes are lusting. This is, in essence, is coveting. The people that we see in this are coveting. And coveting is seeing and wanting and not being satisfied with what we have. Do you see that this is what lust of the eyes is? It's coveting, it's seeing, it's wanting, it's not being satisfied with what we have. Think about the examples that we just mentioned. Eve, what did she have? She had everything. Everything that she could possibly ever want or need there in the Garden of Eden. She had God there with her. And yet she looked and she saw and she wanted and she took. Achan. He had all the promises of God. God had said, I will go with you. I will be with you. I will give you victory over everything. And remember what had happened through that 40 years before. God had miraculously taken them out of Egypt. And he had done all these miracles, the ten plagues, going through the, uh, the Nile or going through the, uh, the Red Sea and then providing for them while they were in uh, the desert for those 40 years and then parting the water as they walked into the promised land. All these different things that God had done and God said, go and just be obedient to me. I have given you my promises. See what I've done already. Bacon looks, he sees, he wants. He covets. David, he was king. He could have anything he wanted. He looks, he sees, he covets, he sins. 
they coveted and it ruined them. This is what John warns the church about. Do not love this world. There's one way that you as a sinner tend to love this world is by looking with your eyes and desiring and not being satisfied with what you have and coveting. Don't set your heart on the things of this world. He knew that this was going to be a danger for them. He knew that this would be a problem, that they would hunger for the stuff of this world, that they wouldn't be satisfied with what they, that they would love that stuff, that they would find their satisfaction and joy in stuff. And if he recognized that danger for them, then how much more is it a danger for every single one of us right here, right now? The things that they had then, they could not even begin to imagine what we have today. Just the very fact of walking in Walmart, we will see more that we can covet after than they ever would have seen in a lifetime. You thought of that? Every time that we go into a grocery store, every time we go into Walmart, we are presented with more possibilities for coveting, more stuff for our eyes to lust after than those people ever possibly could have known. This is something I wrestle with. I don't know about you. You may, you may be a lot holier than me. You probably are. Uh, but this is something I struggle with. How easy it is to walk into Walmart and see that beautiful big screen TV. You know? Like 52 inches. You know, this LCD, crystal clear, HD, everything that I could possibly want. How easy it is for me to go in there and drool a little and to look at it and say, I want, I need, I have to have. Luther said that we can't rid our hearts of covetousness. And our hearts constantly covet. You know, you look at our culture around us, Gosh, that's what our culture cries. Covet. You have to have. You need this. Think about the economic crisis that we're in right now. I mean, it's all a result of coveting. Got to have a bigger house, more than maybe I can even afford. It's what we're, is being screamed to us. You need, you have to have. Covet. And we, and we sense this. I feel this within my heart, seeing the big screen TVs or a house or a car or whatever it might be. I love reading. I love books. So it's easy for me to covet after books. Maybe not something that everyone would covet after. But we have those things. What is it that grabs your heart and you struggle with and you find yourself lusting after with your eyes? John says we tend to be led astray by the lust of our eyes. We tend to love the world that way. We tend to love the world by the lust of the flesh and by the lust of the eyes. And the third thing that he mentions is that we tend to love the world by the boastful pride of life. Now, this is kind of a strange phrase that he uses here. We tend to love the world by the boastful pride of life. What exactly does he mean by that? Well, he uses this same phrase another chapter later in this book, and he says... Um, he uses the, the pride, or uses the word life, and it's translated as goods there in, in 3.17, if you want to look that up. Whoever has the world's goods. Same word that's used there. 
And so what he means here, the pride of life, means pride in the stuff that we possess. Pride in the things that we have in our physical possessions, our cars, our houses, our nice big screen TVs, whatever it might be, or maybe even in things that we wouldn't think about as having pride over. Maybe pride in our intellect. Maybe pride in our age. Oh, you're so young. One day you'll learn. Pride in our education. You know, I've got this degree. Oh, don't you wish you were like me? Pride that comes from the things of this world. Now, I think there's some temptations to avoid for us as we think about this, as we think about loving the world. I think one temptation that could arise for us is to read this passage and think to ourselves, this really doesn't pertain to me. This really isn't a struggle that I have. I was talking to, uh, to another church member about this and just talking about how God was showing me and teaching me through this passage and how was, I was working through this and, and learning about what it meant to, to not love the world and what that was going to look like for my life. And I, and I told him, I said, I think, that, I think that this is something that we all struggle with. I think that we all struggle with this command to, to not love the world. And he looked at me and said, of course, without a doubt. If we didn't struggle this, with this, why would we work so hard to have so much stuff? That's pretty convicting to me. So I think a temptation for us to think about our own lives, do we, do we think about this really, truly applying to us? Generally, the way that we look at passages like this is we tend to think about worldliness and loving the things of the world as being just one step beyond where we are right now. I'm kind of at the line for what's okay, and then anything beyond that is what's going too far. You know, you notice that tendency sometimes? That we tend to think, well, just as long as I don't you know, go as far as this person has, I'm not loving the world. We set the stage just beyond where we are. We need to avoid that temptation, look squarely at our own lives, and begin to ask ourselves the question, am I loving the world? Am I falling into the temptations that John is talking about here? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life, and not set our standard as just this next person over here. That is a danger that we have as believers. And say, the standard for my life is just beyond you know, whatever Todd is over there. But to look exactly at Scripture as the standard for our lives. So we've asked two questions so far. What is the world? How do we tend to love the world? The last question that I want us to examine is what is so wrong with loving the world? What is so wrong with loving the world? And John lays out several reasons for this right here in these passages. He says, first, verse 15, look at that again. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father, father is not in him. The first reason that it's so wrong to love the world is that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Remember what we said, there is a battle going on right now for our hearts, where our hearts are going to be, what we're going to love, what we're going to be consumed with. Will it be love of stuff, love of this world and the things of this world, or will it be love of God? 
Jesus makes it clear. Scripture makes it clear that it cannot be both. Jesus says, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. It cannot be both. We see over and over in Scripture this dichotomy that is set up, whether it's one thing or another. Think about some of the things that are listed out in Scripture, that it's either a, when Jesus comes, he's going to put sheep and goats. It's not going to be a sheep goat. You know? It's going to be one or the other. Jesus says that there are two roads. It's the narrow road or the what? Or the broad road. It can't be a middle ground in between. Jesus says there's either the broad road or the narrow way. It's one or the other. And Revelation, uh, Jesus says, be either hot or cold. Don't be lukewarm. I hate lukewarm. I will spew you out of my mouth. Be one or the other. Here's the thing. We cannot love the ease and stuff of this world and still love God. It is clear. But how easily, how easily it rolls off the tongue. Man, I love UK basketball. Man, I love hunting. I love chocolate. It's good stuff. That's Gene. Amen. There we go. All right. How easy it is for us to truly love the world. Do we set our hearts on the things of this world? Have we truly loved the world? The second reason that he gives is that this world is passing away. Flip back over uh, just a, a page or two um, to 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is coming a point where Peter says, this world will cease to be as we know it. You know, if I, if I live long enough or if, the Lord tarries long enough before he comes, all the stuff I have is going to rot. My house is going to rot. It's going to crumble. Metal is going to rust and go to nothing. But when the Lord comes, he says that he will consume this with fire. Everything that we hold dear, the trinkets that we love, the houses that we love, the cars that we enjoy so much will all come to nothing. Be burned up. Rest away. Why would we love this world? Why would we set our hearts so much on the stuff of this world? Would you invest in a company that you know is going bankrupt next week? No, you know it would be foolish. It would be throwing your money away. Would you buy a house that was going to be demolished in a week? No. It doesn't make any sense at all. Would you go on a ship if you knew that it had holes in it and was getting ready to sink? No. You wouldn't do those things. That's foolish. You don't want to drown. You don't want to put your money in a house that's going to be torn down. All those different kind of things. You don't want to lose your, your money to a bankrupt company. Why would we invest our hearts, set our joy, our satisfaction in things in this world? 
when we know that it's all going to come to naught. The third reason that he gives is that your life is at stake. This is a life and death matter. Listen to what he says in verse 17. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So the one who does the will of God will live forever, but the converse is true in that. If we don't do the will of God, then we won't live forever. Scripture puts this, uh, this connection between obeying the commands of God and, and life and loving God. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we love God, we'll be obedient to him. If we don't love God, we won't be obedient to him. If we don't know God, we won't be obedient to him. And so that picture here is that if we love this world, then that's a sign that possibly we are not true believers. Listen to what James 4, 4 says. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? How many times do we pass over that verse and not really think about it? Do you not know that friendship, and that word for friendship is the Greek word phileo, means brotherly love. Do you not know it, that love toward this world is hatred toward God? Hostility toward God? There are two possibilities that, that might be in our lives if we find ourselves loving the things of this world we find our hearts being drawn toward loving the things of this world. First possibility is that we've grown cool in our love toward God. Our love toward God, God has grown cool and we don't have that kind of flaming passion for God that Scripture calls us to have. And so that can lead to us loving the things of this world. The second possibility is that we don't know Him. If we find ourselves just being consumed and loving the things of this world and that our hearts are set on that, it may be, it could possibly be that we just don't know him. And so if I find myself loving, setting my heart upon this world or the things of this world, I need to ask myself these questions. Have I grown cool to the Lord or is it possible that I don't know him? And that's a question that should be asked whether I'm a pastor or a deacon or whoever it might be because there's always that possibility that we have tricked ourselves into believing that we're truly in Christ, but we might not be. We're in the middle of a battle. Let us not deny that. A battle for our hearts. What are we going to love? What are our hearts going to be centered upon? Tonight, what I want to do is something a little different. I want to ask the musicians to come up, and they're going to play softly. And if you'll look on your note sheet, what I did is I just provided just a few questions. And what I want you to do is while they're playing softly, I want you just to look at these questions. I'm going to read them and make just a few comments about them. And I want you to ask yourselves and think to yourselves about these questions. Because the last thing I want us to do is to walk out of here having heard God's word and not having examined our hearts. Because I think that this is a struggle that we each and all have and that we're tempted by. So I want us to examine ourselves and use these questions to examine your own hearts. So the first question to ask yourself. How do I tend to love the world? How do I tend to love the world? And just a few things to think of on that kind of test for you to ask yourself. What do I find my heart finding joy in? 
what do I find myself just being happy and overjoyed in? What do I find my satisfaction in? Think about that question. How do I tend to love the world? The second question, what right now is my greatest struggle with coveting? What is it that grabs my heart and I find myself being tempted by? Coveting after. The last question. In what am I finding my joy and satisfaction? Is it this world? and the things of this world? Or am I finding my joy and satisfaction in God? Perhaps you answer that question and you find yourself thinking, you know, I'm kind of ambivalent in that. You know, I struggle with that. My, my love has grown cool. And I challenge you to pursue the face of God. To think upon the cross. It's hard to think upon the cross and to still love this world. What we're going to do now is we're just going to respond in singing. Not, you know, as a formal invitation time, but just for you to stand and to respond to the word you've had by singing to God. As Jeff comes and leads us.
all for being here tonight. I pray that you have a wonderful week as you go. And one thing I want to encourage you to remember is continue uh, praying for Pastor Bill as he is gone leading this conference. And um, keep him in prayer as he's preaching about the eclipse of God. I'm sure that he would appreciate that. And he closes in prayer and will be dismissed. God, we give thanks to you for your great glory. And God, we confess that we struggle at times with loving this world when we should have our hearts set fully upon you. God, pray that you'll go with us this week, that you will be glorified in us, set our hearts ablaze with a passionate, deep love for you. God, we pray for Pastor Bill as he is gone. Pray that you will speak through him as he's at this conference, and that you'll use him in a powerful way. May we serve you as we go out to our jobs, to our families, to school, whatever it might be. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.